Well, we're going to look at the second chapter of Luke one more time as a postscript, an Advent postscript this morning. Some texts that are often overlooked in teaching and preaching because the Luke passage is so beautifully arranged for an Advent season. Advent, the appearing, or the the coming, excuse me, the coming. And we see really these Advent statements are ones that the appearing of Christ is a subject that is incredible. We, we always think of Christ appearing at the cross or Christ appearing as resurrection or something like that. But I mean, even in our, our, our praise, the, the idea that our, our, one of the songs, we're fallen from grace. Remember that, that we're fallen from grace, da, 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 da. And, and we think, well, we're falling from grace because, well, when do we fall from grace? God's creation was the first expression of his grace. He was providing something that no one deserved for his own glory and his own good pleasure. And he put man in this innocent state into that creation by his grace and lived by his grace. And we see that grace that's expressed just in a very small way in those passages in Genesis of Adam and Eve walking with God in the garden and so forth. That grace that he gave man life and he gave him breath and then he fell from that grace. And grace is something that we all now are born by grace, but we're born into a fallen state. We're not born into a redeemed state. And grace appears again and again and again and again and again throughout the scriptures. Everywhere you look, you see the grace of God. Even when man has receive such a blessing and turning around and despitefully using him, despitefully sinning against him. And so as a result, we, we should give thanks for the grace of God. That by his grace and by his power and by his, his abilities, we are saved. We are extended into that existence of grace again by his great love and great mercy for us. Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord. Something to give thanks about, sing about, worship him for. Praise the Lord. Well, these two appearances of Jesus as a boy, which are recorded here in Luke's Gospel, they really do reveal a treasured glimpse of Jesus' young years while in care of Joseph and Mary. We don't have a conviction that the Apocrypha is also inspired scripture. You know, those texts of scripture that are in some different Bibles. I know the, in the Catholic tradition, they keep the Apocrypha in the middle and they even go so far as to, to um, come close to claiming these are inspired writings and so forth. And, but um, it becomes very clear as you even read them that some of these are far from that and don't care, they don't bear the marks of inspiration and canonicity that um, were so thoroughly um, analyzed, scriptures were so thoroughly analyzed by um, in the early apostolic years of the church. 
And so as a result, we don't get a lot of glimpses of Jesus' life. However, in Luke's investigation, Luke only, by the way, Luke's gospel, we see these, these three, it's two, but three, two in the temple and one then in the, again in the temple in Jerusalem, these three temple appearings of Jesus as Messiah, his appearing. And it brings a tremendous amount of well, completion, kind of fills a blank. The other gospels, Mark starts right with John the Baptist, or Jesus coming to be baptized by John the Baptist, and Matthew starts with the same. John starts, he mentions John the Baptist after he has described Jesus as the incarnate one. However, in Luke's investigation, we see this expansion. And today, we want to look at that together. So we're going to read together um, Luke chapter 2, verse 23 through 3, verse 6. And because this is a narrative, we're going to look at it as a narrative. We're not going to try to... Well, I, I'm trying to commit myself to this right now. I know that it's important to um, understand the difference between narrative preaching and gospel preaching and, excuse me, and, and epistle preaching. But we're going to try to stay a little more general today in order to um, cover this ground. All right? And you'll know what I mean as we read this together, as you stand with me this morning. And as many as can stand, please stand if you would like to stay seated. And, Please do that. So Luke chapter 2, verse 23 through 3, 6. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated by the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves and two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout, who was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been, re it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, and you have prepared in the sight of all nations, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to, ca to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And a sword will pierce your own heart too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, the tribe of Asher. She was very old. 
And she lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying, coming up to them at that very moment. She gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was on him. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival, the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he, was with, thinking he was in their company, they traveled for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be about my father's, to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of of Turit, and Traconitus, who you say it, Um, (laughs) I'm just, yeah, 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 take it easy. And Lysus, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of the Lord came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the word, words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth. And all people will see God's salvation. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. God bless you. May the Lord add his blessings to the reading and hearing of the word of God today. Amen. Well, that's um, quite a text of scripture. Where did it come from? How do, we, how do we know if it's authentic, that it's authentic? Well, if you look back at the first chapter of the book of Luke, the first verse is he introduces his gospel with these words. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. 
With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And we ask ourselves the question, who is Luke? We don't see Luke showing up until the, till, um, in the book of Acts, well into the book of Acts. In fact, as Paul and Barnabas were sent out in the book of Acts to go into their first missionary journey, um, Luke, Luke was not with them. In fact, they met him on their second missionary journey. He was likely the one who Paul had a dream about. And he had a dream of a man in Macedonia saying, come over and help us. It's a very interesting thing that takes place in the chapter in Acts where that is introduced, where before all that had taken place, the narrative is in the third person. They, 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 they did this, they did that, Paul did this, Barnabas did that. You know, it was all describing something else, some other people. But there in that place, when they started entering toward Macedonia, you see this very curious entry of the first person, we, I, we, over and over again. You start circling it there. It's like circled like 30 times in the first chapter and goes on to the rest of the book of Acts, where we see the presence of Luke joining their group. And so Luke had these resources around him immediately. Paul, of course, Paul's um, had his vision of the Lord. He had his own knowledge of the Scripture. He was acquainted with the Nazarene as he was the one who persecuted the church. And he said that they would, he would call people out and he would, want, he would try to get them to testify. So when they testified, they would condemn themselves under the Jewish law. But imagine what testimonies these believers had about their faith in Jesus Christ and who he was and how they had met him and the testimonies. It's like saying, okay, what we're going to do today is we're going to have everybody give your personal testimony and we're going to judge that personal testimony. Can you imagine what a... What a pleasure of being to just listen to all the testimonies of people here today, how you met Jesus, where you were, what kind of life you'd lived before, and yet now you've become a believer in him, and the, you go from this general lostness to this very specific salvation. And so as a result, Luke is listening to these kinds of testimonies through the testimony of Paul. He, Paul was his apostolic connection. And because he was an investigator, he was a, a doctor, probably a medical doctor of that time frame. He was, um, he was an investigator. He was a researcher. He liked to find out more facts about things. And so he said, I've taken upon myself to make a very careful investigation of what? Everything that all the other gospel writers wrote about. So you have Matthew at that time. You have Mark at that time, whose gospels have been completed. John's is completed just a little bit later. He doesn't have John's gospel, but... He certainly has John himself. And so as he investigates this, you see things in Luke's gospel that aren't even included in other gospels. It's the longest gospel, isn't it? And so there's nothing in the other gospels, except Mark, briefly, that doesn't appear in Luke. Luke brings a summation to everything in it. However, these accounts aren't in Matthew and Mark. They aren't in John. This whole sequence of events with Zechariah and, and, and so forth, the birth of John the Baptist, Mary, then the, the Annunciation of, of Mary, the angel coming to Mary and making the, 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 um, the news about her soon coming pregnancy and birth known to her. They're all in Luke. And I don't know about you, but as I read this, if you say to yourself, 
Who is Luke quoting here? Well, he may be quoting Zechariah. Zechariah telling him his story. He was an old man, but an old man telling your story about when you were a younger old man. You have Mary herself, Elizabeth perhaps, perhaps Lubus and Zechariah. You have others that are telling their story to Luke, particularly Mary. She is revealing these incredible things. She is a firsthand witness, of course, at his birth. She's a firsthand witness at these temple encounters, and she's a firsthand witness to everything about his life and ministry as he went along. Though, as we've learned in Mark, there's a little bit of a, of a disconnect from, the, from whether she really understood all this, understood all these things. To such a point that you see in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus makes the statement that who are my mother and my brothers and my, my, my sisters, they're the ones that believe on me. Remember how he said that? And so we see this little bit of a disconnect where his, his, his family came up from Nazareth to kind of catch him, take him home, because take charge of him, it said, because he was out of his mind. He felt he was out of his mind. And he went into his own hometown. He said that a prophet has honor except in his own hometown. And among who? His family. And so there's this bit of a disconnect that we see between what Mary observed and what it meant to her, as if she was also waiting for something to take place and in God's good timing to reveal to her so that she also could understand who her son was, her son Jesus. And that's another thing just to note is that you see in these, these narratives that they, there's a distinction between Mary's son and Mary's children, showing them to be this even, just, even a, maybe a misunderstanding there, or not a full disclosure there on, their, on the parts of people in his own hometown. They knew that Mary got pregnant before she was married and had this baby, and then Joseph married her, and so the news kind of leaks out, and he does marry her, but they also know the other news. They know the, you know, the, the other stuff, that she somehow, somebody's, somewhere she got pregnant, was by Joseph supposedly, but who knows, you know. And then he was later even kind of ridiculed for being the son of Mary, you know, the unwed mother and her bastard son. So we see all these things coming into play. Many of them are revealed to us in Luke's gospel. Um, not like Matthew giving his own personal firsthand accounts of what happened in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Or Mark, as he is a young man, but still using that. And then the, 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 um, the ideas of Peter also to build his whole gospel narrative. But here is someone who is going, and they're not talking to the big guys. They're you know, Matthew and Mark and John. Not only is he talking to them, he's also going and talking to the other people. People who maybe weren't listened to by everybody. Mary. Elizabeth, Zechariah, and others. Perhaps, perhaps, in a timeline, even um, those who were disciples of Peter and disciples of Matthew and disciples of Mark, 
and those who were observers to this. There's a lot of people in Capernaum, for example, a lot of hometown people in Capernaum who knew all about Jesus, all about him. They followed him. Their testimonies when they got saved and where they were. And those persons that were at the great feeding of the, of the thousands of people, all those kinds of persons. There was just witnesses and eyewitnesses everywhere. In fact, it says in Hebrews, the faith chapter, that there is a cloud of testimony around us. Great cloud of testimony around who Jesus Christ is. And the substance of our faith is confirmed by everyone, including our own. And so as a result, with this kind of backdrop in mind, we see Luke then telling us from this vantage point of a person who is, you know, the in-depth reporter. Starting out, when the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves and two young pigeons. Now, if you do any kind of research on that little phrase, you'll find that's the, the cheapest thing you can bring. It's not the, not the bull and not the ram. It's the cheapest thing you can get to make a proper sacrifice of thanksgiving for the birth of a child. And this is very telling about the, both the devotion of Joseph and Mary, but also the financial status of Joseph and Mary. They weren't those who could afford every year to bring a sacrifice. Later we'll see that they went to Jerusalem every year. But the last place that we see in Mark, for example, is they go back to Nazareth. And they pick up their life there. And here, now in Luke, he gives us another step. Mark goes straight from Jesus coming to be baptized. But here's another step. They're going to back to Jerusalem. Now from Nazareth to Jerusalem is a pretty big trip. It's a um, week's trip to get there. But here they do it every single year. And here in this first one, they're going for this purification, the rites of the law of Moses. Now, everybody dreamed of being able to go to Jerusalem to do this with their child. And if everybody did, they would make a preparation for everybody to do it. However, most people didn't go to Jerusalem. Most people in Israel did not go to Jerusalem except maybe once in their life. And this phrase that has lasted even now um, from antiquity, next year Jerusalem. You see that, that phrase. You hear that now. Of course, we're in the United States, so next year, Jerusalem. I want to go next year. I'm a Jewish person. I want to go to Jerusalem next year. It was also something that was known in antiquity to be the same thing. The hope that one day they could go to Jerusalem for the Passover, or go to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, or go to Jerusalem for one of the other feasts. And here, they're winding up going to Jerusalem. They have to go through the whole process of purchasing a, an offering. You didn't just bring your own pigeons your own doves, and then take them in and say, Here, they say, if you did that, they say, what's that? We don't allow strange, you know, habitat to come into the temple. So what you got to do is you got to take your <clears throat> Roman money, and you got to go to the money changers, and you got to change it into temple money, and then you have to buy a blessed 
sacrifice through the temple. You, you, you hear any words come out in the back of your mind like abuse? <laughs> you know, Jesus later, he threw them all out of there for that very thing because they were making money on this whole exchange because they just had to have their own blessed sacrifices. And then they brought this into a temple and the temple at the time was immense. Um, who was it? Uh, one of the uh, historians, can't remember his name right now, um, he, he made the statement that there, over 200,000 people could be in the court of the Gentiles at one time during these feasts. That's, that was the court where anybody could go as you came to Jerusalem. So here you walk into this place and there's this immensity about, this, about Herod's temple that was incredibly intimidating. Like the waters of the Niagara, you know, the, the sounds of the temple. When the people would sing, for example, they said they could hear them for miles and miles and miles around the region. As the pilgrimage, pilgrims came into Jerusalem and walked up that, that mount, they would sing these songs of ascent that are listed in Psalms chapter 100 to 150 or thereabouts. Psalms of ascent. So they sing the songs of Israel. And here's this young couple going there to have their child perhaps circumcised, give an offering for him. It's the time of his eight days later after his birth. Some, somewhere in that time frame, it was at least eight days. Couldn't go before eight days. To have him consecrated to the Lord. Just a, a couple, just going into the temple and, and going in to have this ceremony take place. In keeping with, with what the Lord, law of the Lord said. And so while they were there, now imagine, it's not just two people going and finding one priest and they have, but just an immense amount of people in this place. Many of them doing the same thing you're doing. Trying to wait their turn to have their infant dedicated in the temple in Jerusalem. While they're there, it says, and it says, Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous, and he was devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. What does that mean? The consolation of Israel. We've talked about the Jewish eschatological hope, haven't we, many times. What is their hope? Their hope is that one day the Messiah will come and he will break the yoke of the oppressor upon Israel, national Israel. He's a geopolitical person. The Messiah is coming. He's going to be a geopolitical person. He's going to break the yoke of oppression that's being placed against Israel as a nation. And he's going to throw that oppression off, that Satan, that satanic oppression, small s. They believe that whoever the, who is the oppressor at this time? Rome. Rome's the oppressor. Going to throw off that oppressor. And then he was going to rule from Jerusalem the whole world forever. <coughs> Pretty simple eschatological hope. No antichrist, no, you know, whatever. Nothing else we can find it interests us, but it was just a very simple eschatological hope. And this person, Simeon, had this hope. Now what drove him to think that it was going to be through an infant that was going to come into the temple 
it doesn't really say he was looking for the infant. I remember this was a, I always think of Cecil B. DeMille's, but there's like hundreds of these beautiful depictions of this, of this in cinema, right? And you see Simeon, and he's, he's walking around, and there's a baby, and he goes over and goes, excuse me just a moment. Oh, that beautiful baby. That's not him. Uh, yeah. Ooh, that's not him. Then he goes over, and here's Joseph and Mary, he goes, just a moment. Oh, here's the Messiah. <laughs> Could have been, <laughs> you know, talking about something in silence, you know, that's, we should, they should have asked Cecil B. DeMille to help Luke. You know, he could have got a lot more detail on that thing. But we see this person, and he has this hope within his heart. doesn't say how he's acting on it. He just has this hope in his heart for the consolation of Israel. This time when the Messiah is going to bring about a change, a catechismic change, a large change to the nation of Israel and throw off their oppressor, whoever that is, and this is a consolation that was going year after year after year after year, and then oppressor after oppressor after oppressor after oppressor until this moment, when it says now, at this time. And it says some characteristics about it. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him. It was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah, moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. He wasn't there all the time. He just was moved to go into temple courts. And with those things where we just felt like, well, I want to go into the temple now. I, I, I feel like maybe I should I just go in the temple. Moved by the Holy Spirit. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms. I don't know what he saw. I don't know what he, how he saw him. I don't know what the, the, it wasn't just, you know, hoping that, he just was going and standing in the right place. I don't know how the Ethiopian eunuch got into that chariot. I don't know why he's gone down the road. I don't even know why Philip was told by the Holy Spirit, just walk down that road. But as he's walking down that road, the chariot comes next to him and he hears somebody reading from Isaiah. Do you remember this? doesn't say, he said, no, there's going to be the Ethiopian, you're going to get him saved. And all, the, all of Ethiopia, and all, everything, he's going to be, you know, just walk down that road. Go in the temple. And as he goes in the temple, there is this appearing to him. The appearing. He saw something in this child. Saying. Think Who's Mary and Joseph? Yeah, I had a few dreams. It was kind of a rocky beginning there. You know, I, I understand some things. Gabriel, an angel appeared to me, you know, and those kind of things. But, you know, I'm a carpenter. I'm doing my job, right? I'm doing my carpenter job. Raising my family. Didn't stop him from having four other kids right after Jesus, you know. So he's raising. Now he's got four kids he's raising. Remember those that are listed in the Bible for us. There's Joseph and there's Mary. And he got this great opportunity to go to Jerusalem and so this, to the synagogue to do this in the temple, and all of a sudden, here's this guy, and Mary, uh, why is that guy looking at us? Why, you know, protect the baby. <laughs> you know? And he not only sees him, but he says, may I hold your child? You say, a pretty baby, can I hold that baby? I don't know about you, but I, I don't hold babies, you know why? 
Even my own grandkids. You know why? Because you take them there. They go, they start like this, and they go, they go, ah! <laughs> it's crazy. Both of them kind of became human beings, and after that, it was great. Then they recognized us all, you know? For the human beings, only see one person, that's mommy. And daddy sometimes. Dave would say to me, don't worry, Dad. She does the same thing to me, too. <laughs> so I felt better, a little better. Taking him in his arms. Taking him in his arms. He says, my eyes, O oh, sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation. Are you seeing this with me as I read this? To whom? To Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Isn't it curious how quickly all of these revelations, whether it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, there's a reference to the Gentiles and to Israel. To the Gentiles, a revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Just a note, I'm not going to go into the Gentile issue, but just a note that right here in this passage, he has this, in this, excuse me, this statement, he has this statement about revelation of Gentiles and glory of the people of Israel. The child's father and mother were marveled at what was said about him. Now I think words like marveled, amazed, even terrified, are words in the Scripture that has a range of meaning that include each other in their range of meaning. Isn't that interesting? So you have amazed, and it includes in the range of meaning, marveled. And you have terror at certain points. They were, they were, great terror came upon them with the wise men. And in the range of meaning is marveled and amazed. As if they're trying to find a word that describes a person who sees something and just, just goes beyond their ability to comprehend it. Just instantly beyond their ability to comprehend it. And here, they weren't just saying, oh, that's pretty cool. You know, our child's going to be somebody special. That's great. No, they were like just shook by this. This person, whoever this person is, has this incredible promise that's made to him and then given this promise by the Lord. The child's father and mother were marveled at this and said to him, at what he had said to them, to him, excuse me. I guess it really didn't matter if, I, just as a note I didn't think of before. It doesn't really matter what Joseph and Mary hear. He's saying this to Jesus. To this infant. To this child. Oh, praise the Lord. Jesus doesn't need an audience. Doesn't anybody confirm anything. He is the Messiah of Israel. And they marveled at what was said to him, to him, was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the fallings and the risings of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. We, don't, we won't take the time to look at that in detail. But much like the shepherd's revelation. It gives this revelation to the shepherd. The angel speaks these characteristics of what was going to happen with this person who was going to be born in Bethlehem. 
And then very shortly after that, they heard the angels sing and they were gone. And the shepherds that said they were, they were, they were, they were something. You make up the word. What is it? Estupendo! You know, whatever. It was just, they were just overwhelmed by this and they decided to go. And then you say, wait a minute, before they go, did, they, did you understand exactly what the angel said to you? Did you get it all? Did you get everything? And if you go back and look at it piece by piece, it's the gospel. It's the gospel that they would need and they would understand more clearly as time went by. And here we see the same characteristics of the things that this prophet, this seer said to them. And just about the time that was kind of coming to a calm down position, they're getting a, you know, a grip on themselves a bit, you know, they're wondering what all this means. Especially the sword will pierce your own soul too. I mean, what is this all about? It's just a baby. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old and she lived with her husband for a short period of time and lived as a widow apart from her husband. And it says she was in the temple all the time. She lived inside the temple. I'm not sure how that actually could occur, but she, she lived within the context of the Temple Mount. She never left the temple, it says, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. I tell you what, if I'm going to get prophesied over somebody, that's the kind of person I want to get prophesied over, I'd be prophesied by, to, by. Right? Not one of these people that, you know, have big problems, and you just soon as say something about prophecy, they go, oh, yeah. I used to be a prophet. And thus saith the Lord to you. And you go, oh yeah, tell me everything. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's the kind of people God uses. You know, the people that, the gifts and calling of God without repentance, and they believe that what that means is I got a gift of prophecy. I'm never going to lose it no matter what I do. It's not quite in context. It's off by about a million years, a million miles. And so we see this prophetess, the kind of person you like to see, you know, that says that, what about John? John, uh, he lived in the wilderness from his birth, and he wore camel's hair stuff, you know, whatever that is, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Now, frankly, if you see that kind of person coming to you saying, thus saith the Lord, you have an inclination to believe them just because they kind of fit the part. Jonah coming out of a whale, being bleach white, for three days, coming out, and everybody's talking about a whale swallowed him, and he goes across to Nineveh, bleached white, his clothes are white. He didn't say change his clothes to something that wasn't white. He was bleached white, and he goes, hair's bleached white? He's white, man. He is bleached white, and he goes toward Nineveh. I can see Nineveh going, whoa, whoa, whoa. Here comes the person. I think he's a prophet. <laughs> These characteristics are all over this person. And she says, she, it doesn't say what she says, but she, proph she prophesied over him. She prophesied over him. And we see this whole temple context, just awakening in our souls that there's something unique, there's something special Something about this child 
that God has placed in the earth that we just want to tell people about. We want to tell someone about. She came up at the very moment and she gave thanks and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. Again, the redemption of Israel, the redemption of Israel. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law, they returned to Galilee, to their own town. The child grew, became strong, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And then we see the silence come again. The silence. If you're Luke... Who do I go to next? Is there anything else like that? That was pretty cool. Is there anything else like that? Perhaps as he's talking to Mary, she tells this story. Is there anything else, Mary? Well, there was that time. He was 12 years old. There was that time. So to figure for literature, you know, the false signature literature of the 400 years of darkness, it's included in the Apocrypha, and everywhere else is tons of this stuff. They talk about one of the most famous stories, famous false stories about Jesus was that he was out playing with his friends on the beach. And they were playing with some clay pigeons. And they were making fun of him. His friends, little children, friends were making fun of him. So what he took, he did, he just decided, I don't like the way you're making fun of me. He turned the clay pigeons into real pigeons and they attacked the kids. Now that's got to be true, right? <laughs> that didn't, Mary didn't remember that story. Luke's purging her. Anything else? Anything else? But no, she says, well, there was something. There was a strange thing that took place in Jerusalem. And it was like 12 years later. When he was 12 years old, verse 42, they went up to the festival according to the custom. They went up every year. It says in 41. And while his parents were returning home, they had a great time at the festival, you know, go to the festival. The thing is like an extravaganza takes place every year in Jerusalem. And they're all talking about that. And you're in a large company of family and friends. And so, you know, kids mix together. You're not sure where people are. And a couple days after getting there, leaving their trip, they, Jesus hasn't been at the last couple of days. Where, where's Jesus? What's he doing? Well, he kind of looked around the group and made a thorough group uh, research of the whole group. Fine, he's not there. No one knows where he is. I haven't seen Jesus. He hasn't been here the whole time. So they have to go back the two days trip to Jerusalem, and then they look in Jerusalem for three days for Jesus. And guess where they didn't look first? The temple. Hey, man, they knew he was the Messiah. Really? Why didn't they look at the temple? What about the consolation of Israel? Where's that going to come from? The temple. They're looking everywhere, it seems, except the temple. And they said, you know, the only thing I can do, it's like, how do we say? I guess all we can do now is pray. You ever heard that one? I guess all we can do now is pray. You should have started there. That's the first place to start, and all the things that happen to bring you there is God working to bring you there. And so they wind up in the temple, and who do they see? They see these scribes and 
teachers of the law, these rabbinical persons, these experts, these experts in the traditions of men that later on Jesus is going to rebuke for following their traditions versus following the law. And here he is, he's sitting among them, 12 years old. Some of these are old guys. They've been around a while. Some are perhaps young. They're studied. You get to be Pharisees and teachers of the law without study. Look at Paul's resume in Philippians chapter 1 and 2. So who do they see? They see Jesus over there and he's asking questions. Perhaps with the context we see after they ask the questions, he's answering some questions, having his own answers. And we see, let me see if I can find that way. Um, three days later, it's verse 40, 46. They found, him in, they found him in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Asking them questions. You know, Jesus' questions were pretty intense, weren't they? Remember one about John the Baptist? Is John the Baptist, uh, is he whatever, he authentic? And Jesus said, well, let me ask you a question. So he asked them a question. And they say, we're not asking him any more questions. That happened over and over again. We're not asking him any more questions. And said so they went away. They never asked him any more questions. Some woman comes to a well. Heard about this in a sermon sometime recently. She starts asking Jesus some questions. And Jesus starts asking her some questions. And the man, as soon as he started asking her questions, she said, I think you must be the Messiah. You're a prophet. No one ever did what you're doing. This guy's 12 years old. I've got a 12-year-old grandson. He's really smart. He's not asking these kind of questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed. Again, you remember seeing that word, just kind of think, I should look that word up. That word doesn't just mean... Who can I pick on? That's an amazing dress you're wearing. That's an amazing suit. Oh, those new glasses, they look amazing on you. <laughs> we throw this word around everywhere. That's an amazing this, an amazing that. I, I think to myself, you don't know what amazing means. The range of meaning for amazing includes a lot of other words that sound just the same. They're overwhelmed. They were just put off. They were just, in some cases, even afraid in their amazement. Terrified. Who is this? Who is this? They were astonished. His parents now were... They're amazed, and his parents are astonished. There's another word, Astonished. His mother said to him, son, let's talk about something important, something trivial. <laughs> Why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why are you searching for me? He asked, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Don't you get what you're seeing? Talking about amazed, when Jesus' family later he was amazed by how little faith they had. They're amazed by all this stuff that goes beyond their ability to understand. And he's amazed by how little they can understand anything. And he's really he's saying the same thing here again. 
But they did not understand what he was saying. We didn't know who you were. That's the whole point, isn't it? We don't know who he is. When people, you talk to somebody about something, they don't know what you're talking about. Some people will say, well, tell me about it. Teach me, teach me about these things. Some people will act like they already know what you're talking about. And within five seconds, you know, they don't know what they're talking about. Some people will get irritated, you know. They will say, get away from me. I don't like talking to stupid people like you because you know what you're talking about. Get away from me. There's these reactions people have to when someone says things they don't know what they're talking about. You know that. Share the gospel with somebody. And when someone rejects you, it's not because they know exactly what you're talking about and they don't want to go to heaven. Okay? They don't want to be forgiven for their sins. That's not the reason that they reject us. They reject us because they don't know what we're talking about. And here his own parents are put into this same category. They did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them. He was obedient to them. Luke's insight. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. How do I know where this came from? He would say to Luke, how do you know this is true? Because his mother told me this. It virtually says that. His mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Wisdom. Stature. Growing into this. This doesn't mean he's growing into an awareness of this. He's coming to the potential of this. You might say, why are you bringing that point out? Because it's a big point. Because some people think that Jesus kind of learned who he was. It just, he just kind of grew into it. Like this most recent mockery, really, of the divinity of Christ. This Jesus movie that came out. And he said, well, I guess I have some gifts. I guess, it, I, must, I guess I should try to go ahead and be the Messiah or something. It was ridiculous. He didn't grow into who he was. He grew into the the potentials of who he was. A 12-year-old, an infant, and then a man. He is what he is. Jesus is what he is, but he comes to a appointed time when those things are going to become manifest. He grew in the wisdom and grew in stature. He, he read the Scriptures and he didn't just suddenly get a chip put in his head where he knows the whole Scripture. Oh, he's got the, whole, the Word of God with him. That's a pretty big chip, I guess, if you keep that analysis. But he was diligent. He read. He studied. He learned Hebrew. He learned these languages. And stature, he grew in his physical person, and he grew in the favor of God and man. Hmm. What a blessing these are. Amen? What a blessing to have these pictures. Not, not day by day. There's not, you know, films of Jesus and he's, like we keep today. Until the 15th year 
of the reign of Tiberius Caesar when Pontius Pilati was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria, and Traconitus, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of... Does this person want us to know exactly when this happened? Ananias, Annas, and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And his voice was one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight paths for him. This wasn't just some guy that was born and was in a good family and, you know, he kind of was smart and so he kind of grew up and so he's the natural one of everybody else. These witnesses declare to us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. It's the witness of everyone who is with Him. And we have the have a greater testimony and a greater statement of witness to others of who he is. Well, you know, Jesus is just a good man who lived a long time ago. No, he wasn't just a person who lived a long time ago. He was in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius. We should memorize this. Well, as if we showed up someplace. How many of you, if I met you and you really seemed like a really nice person, I said, well, you're a really nice person. Kind of thanks for showing up. As if we didn't come from someplace. No, I was born in this year. I was born on this day. I was born by these parents. Who was president? Who was leader of my country? Whatever it is, all these details, we bring people right into the focus of this because they're authentic and they're real and they have a history. Why Israel kept genealogies. It wasn't just because they wanted to help people go to sleep later when they were reading them. I always get to the genealogies and all I do is fall asleep. Well, maybe you should just skip that part maybe for right now. Because that's somebody's life that's saying, I lived, I lived, I lived, I lived. I had a father, I had a mother. You're not going to just put me off if someone doesn't exist. You're not going to be able to say in a thousand years, oh, that never even really happened. Jesus really never rose from the dead. As if you, know, you could say that now, as if you know, your opinion is going to suddenly... Bink! Everything's going to go away. Oh, I don't believe in God. Oh, God just stopped existing just now. Thanks a lot. You ruined everything. No. There's history. There's reality. There's context. This is the God we serve. This is our Master who continues to be the living one who was dead but now is alive. It just goes on and on, doesn't it? We have this proclamation. This Gospel of good tidings. And I, for one, am so grateful to Luke. And so grateful to God that he put this tenacity in him. He had to travel a long ways to go and find out many of the things he learned. It doesn't say where Mary visited Macedonia. She never went to Rome. But he went back over, track by track by track by track. That's why so many places, there's kind of like these isolated points in, this, in the book of Acts where you don't see certain people you saw a minute ago. Where are they? Well, they're on some journey. Where's Luke's journey? I'm going to go back to Jerusalem. I'm going to interview five, ten people there. <clears throat> I heard about somebody in Capernaum who was actually there. He was on the front row when Jesus took the bread and broke it, and it became enough to feed 5,000 people. I have consulted with eyewitness testimony. And yet, we hear people that just throw it off as just an old book that was written. Well, you can say it's old, 
But you can't say it wasn't written by real people with details again and again. And even in these places where there seems like there's lost time, even those details that we see here today are so incredible. They're still amazing. Oh, may we never lose the wonder, the wonder of His mercy. Is that your prayer? Glory to your holy name, Father. Thank you for your word. Awaken us afresh in Jesus' name. Amen.